Listen now to the word of God. Romans 1, 1 through 7, and then 16, 25 to 27. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's hard when you come to the end of a book that you've really enjoyed reading. I remember the first time I read through the Chronicles of Narnia. I started the first book as I began Christmas break in my third year of college. I'd been told this is a good series, but for some reason, I had only heard about it just a few months prior. At this stage of my life, I don't even know how that's possible to live that long without being aware of this series. So I began the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, observing the only order in which this series should be read. Thank you. I'll wait for more if I need it. I began The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe just a day or so into break, thinking that with uh, the other things I needed to do during that time, I might be able to finish it before I returned to classes three weeks later. I had a weekend job during those days, sitting at a desk from midnight till 8 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday morning in an ornate glass and mirror lobby of a luxury high-rise condominium on Michigan Avenue. This place was was decorated elegantly for Christmas, as was all the Magnificent Mile, and the Christmas lights were the only source of illumination in that room during my shift. And I just sat there. From time to time, people would come in after a late night out, but for the most part, it was quiet for the better part of eight hours. 
As I recall, I finished that first book of Narnia by the end of the shift on which I started it. It surely seemed to me at that point that there must be a passage into Narnia somewhere in my vicinity. The next night, I read book two, Prince Caspian, feeling like it was just chapter two of the very same book. No drowsiness overcame me during that shift, as was my custom, <laughs> or I should say unlike my custom. And on that one, I even continued reading after I got back to my dorm uh, because I hadn't quite finished it, finished reading it before I went to sleep for about an hour and then went to church. I finished all seven books before that week was finished first week of that three-week break, and then came that hard feeling I mentioned just a couple of moments ago. I wanted to find book eight in this series and just keep on reading, but at the very same time, I never wanted to read another book again. That's a strange tension. It's like you've read the best one there. I just wanted to find my way into Narnia and live there for the rest of my life. I know I'm not alone in that feeling. Each of us describes our experience with these books differently, but, but somehow they also end up sounding a lot the same in some notable ways. For this morning, though, it's just, it's just hard to come to the end of a good book. What's the answer to that question? The answer is that you always just have to take that book with you into life. You need to weave the threads of its storyline into the fabric of your life such that in the most meaningful of ways, you're living it out in the real world. That's what you do with a good book. You're living out in Narnia, right here on earth, or, or perhaps better, you're living in the world like a citizen of that one. You're living in this world like a citizen of that one, like a native Narnian here. You're, you're fully engaged in this world, but you fully embody the mindset and the perspective of that one. That's how it works best. Do you know what? We're having a very similar experience this morning with the book of Romans. I've wanted to preach this book ever since I came here 19 years ago. I, I think, though, the last two pastors of this church, and there have only been four of us, the last two pastors, Romans was the last book they preached. They preached it, and then they were gone, and I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. So. <laughs> now, nah, that just meant that this body had gone through that letter on a couple of occasions, very helpful ways. Even so, many among us have wanted to study it again through most of the time I've been here. It's the most often requested letter or book of the Bible that I've heard to be preached. Finally, 2023 was the year. We began on the first available Sunday this past January, the 8th. We weren't going to start a new series on New Year's Day. So we began on the 8th. Now we're finishing it 49 weeks later, just in time to prepare for Christmas. But surely, as much as any other book of the Bible, given 
given the depth and significance of this one as, as the most detailed explanation of the good news that Scripture includes, we almost want to go just, just go right back to the beginning and start all over again. Romans is like a biblical version of Narnia. You just want to move into that mindset and live there. You want to enter into the aeon of Christ as it was described in Romans 5, that realm of righteousness and spirit and life and leave behind the aeon of Adam. Sin, flesh, and death. Can't we just be done with that? That's so much more defensible with this letter to the Romans than it even is with the Chronicles of Narnia. That mindset. But the response, the response is just the same. Just, just take this book with you. Weave the threads of its storyline into the fabric of your life such that in every meaningful way you're living it out right here in the real world. You're living out Romans right here in Warrenville. Or better, you're living in the realm of Adam like you belong to the realm of Christ. You're fully engaged in this world but you you embody the world to come. Your citizenship is there. We get a taste of this very dynamic in today's passage. Paul's actual aim in this passage is pretty clear to, dis- to, to, to use the words of, of Doug Moo one more time. His aim here is to end his majestic letter with an affirmation of praise to God who has revealed the climax of salvation history in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a great way to put it. And here at the end, that's just what we want to do. That's how we want to live. That's the, the, the storyline we want to weave into our own hearts and lives. Our glorious God has provided a glorious salvation. Praise him, Yes. But now, woven into this this flourishing crescendo of a conclusion is also a present reminder of what we should do with it. What we should do with this conclusion, yes, but what we should do with this letter. Paul's telling us the very thing that I've been suggesting since we started. He's telling us how we should live into and live out the message of this letter that has so captured our hearts and has so fired our imaginations. So addressing three questions, I believe, is what will best help us to see, to understand, to process, and to take away what Paul has intended us to take away, not just here and now, but from this letter as a whole. You see those questions listed in your bulletin. They're not divided out by verses because this is really a singular thought. These questions just draw out what we should hear from this text in bite-sized portions so we can appreciate what we're hearing. First question, what is Paul's central purpose in this closing passage? We've almost given it already, but we'll give it with a little bit more clarity and specificity. Second, why is this Paul's central purpose as his letter ends? 
He gives us that as well. And then third, how are we best able to fulfill this central purpose? What do we do with this? Those are the three questions we want to ask and answer this morning. So let's get started. What is Paul's central purpose in this closing passage? It really isn't hard to see, is it? It brackets the text, his central purpose. If we merge the little word to at the start of verse 25 with that same word to at the start of verse 27. If you just merge those two words and read that as one sentence, you've, you've got Paul's central purpose stated in his own words. Now to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. There's Paul's central purpose in this closing. Glory to God. Always and forever recognizing it can only come in Christ. That can only be done in Christ. God can only be glorified in the means by which he has provided for us to glorify him. So that's Paul's central purpose in the closing words of this letter that, that drills more deeply into the good news of the gospel and explains it with more compelling clarity than any other passage in all of Scripture. Now to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul wants to identify God as standing entirely alone in this category called wise. It's not just that there are many wise gods and he's the wisest of them. It is that he alone is worthy of that ascription, wise. He alone. In the category called wise, one being inhabits it. And that is the, the God who has brought about what we've just read and studied together in this letter. He wants to, to identify God as standing entirely alone in the category called wise. He wants to affirm that God is worthy of glory forevermore due to all he's shown us of himself and his plan in this letter. So he's worthy of this glory that is being called for. And third, he wants us to see that it's only through Jesus Christ, the propitiation God put forward by his blood to be received by faith. If you remember chapter 3, it's only through Jesus Christ that we could possibly be transformed transformed into ones who can hear and respond to this charge. This charge to glorify God forevermore through Jesus. So, Paul's central purpose is just that. It's the call to his readers to celebrate the glory of the only wise God forevermore through Jesus Christ. Question one, answered. Why is this Paul's central purpose as his letter ends? Why? Again, I would say the answer is right here. We're called to celebrate the glory of God through Jesus Christ forevermore because he has proven himself. To spell it out, he has proven himself able, verse 25, to strengthen us according to Paul's gospel 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. He has proven himself able to do this. Perhaps more plainly we could say we're called to celebrate God's glory because God has proven himself able to reconcile rebel sinners to himself through Jesus' sacrifice, a plan that couldn't have been known apart from his revealing it, and a plan that couldn't have been understood, even though revealed, until we actually saw it play out in time and space. So grand a plan it was. It was just unbelievably impossible this plan that God promised until we actually saw it happen. That's what Paul is saying. Why is God worthy of glory forevermore through Jesus Christ? Because he proclaimed the impossible and then carried it out. He planned and purposed and promised the inconceivable and then carried it out. Friends, there's no better time of year to be remembering and rehearsing these very truths expressed in these verses than right now during the Advent season. The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, just to use Paul's language, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages cannot be captured in one single event in the life of Christ, say his, his crucifixion or his resurrection. But if there were only one event in the life of Christ that could capture all of this, it actually wouldn't be either of these, his crucifixion or his resurrection, odd as that might sound. To use the words of C.S. Lewis, the grand miracle... That's the title of his chapter in Miracles where he addresses this point. The grand miracle in his words, the central miracle God accomplished is the incarnation of Jesus. God became man. That's inconceivable. It's not just impossible. It's inconceivable from our vantage point. God became man. How can God become man without laying aside godness? Jesus shows us. When I say we couldn't conceive of it, not to mention understand it until we actually saw it play out, nobody's going to think of this. God became man, continuing to quote Lewis, every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. In order to live a perfect life according to the word of God and die on the cross in the place of all who believe and rise from the dead in victory over sin and death, and return to the Father's right hand, promising to come again and welcome his faithful followers into their final reward. In order to do all of that, 
the eternal Son of God had to be born into this world in human form, flesh and blood, finite and frail in his humanity. That event was the initial and inconceivable requirement that kept even faithful students of God's word from understanding what he had made known to us through the prophets. What he had made known to all nations through his most holy word. What else in all of human history, to just give you a few examples, what else in all of human history rivals the incarnation of Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 9? Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is, is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's theology woven into that promise that we still are working to unravel. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. How can that be talking about anybody else in all of human history? But Jesus alone. What else but God coming in the flesh could provide what the prophet wrote that we have, have actually sung together this morning from Isaiah 40? Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Listen to this. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Let that one descend upon you this second Sunday of December 2023. Are we hoping and praying for that day? That's not rhetorical. Are we hoping and praying for that day? Amen. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. What else but Jesus' saving, cleansing work in his body on the cross is disturbing for, of the description from Isaiah 53, part of which we just heard as an assurance of pardon this morning. But reading a bit more from that text, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How clear is that? And yet we couldn't understand it until we saw it played out. It was impossible. It was inconceivable. And yet it's promised from the prophetic writings in this kind of detail. What a great time of year to be finishing Romans, eh? All of this has been done, Paul writes here, according to the command of the eternal God. That is, according to his sovereign decree, according to his saving purpose. He did it. He just said, this is what I'm going to do, and he did it. So why is it Paul's central purpose in this majestic letter to call his readers to celebrate the glory of the only wise God forevermore through Jesus Christ? Why? It's because God has proven himself able to provide salvation. To declare it and then bring it about. To call his absolutely impossible shot and then make it happen. Baseball fans still stand in awe of Babe Ruth in game three of the 1932 World Series. The game right here at Wrigley Field. We remember it because we don't see many games of that sort. Allegedly, he called his shot. In the fifth inning at bat, he pointed to the center field stands briefly with his bat and then proceeded to hit a home run to that general area. To this day, it's still not certain that that's what he meant when he briefly raised his bat toward center field. But that's what we choose to believe. And we stand in awe. But my friends, I would suggest to you that we are too easily awed. We're too easily amazed. I'm rather confident we could find a hundred hitters in the history of baseball who'd be capable of doing a very similar thing under similar circumstances. But there is no one in the history of humanity who could write an imaginary tale that would outdo what God has actually done in space and time through the incarnation and then the death and resurrection of Jesus. He stands alone in his category of wise, and he stands alone in his category of powerful. You alone, O oh God, are wise, and you alone are powerful. What is it that we think the problem of evil calls into question with regard to the character of God? 
Either he's not loving or he's not powerful. Either he sees our need and can't meet it, or he doesn't see our need. He's not really loving. That could only be uttered by someone who has no understanding whatsoever of what Scripture teaches us about God and the salvation that he promised. The letter to Romans needs to be read again slow enough to understand, to appreciate by the time we get to this doxology what Paul is saying about the God who has brought this about. Third question, then. How are we best able to fulfill this central purpose? How do we best bring glory to God forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord? How do we do that? Especially right here and right now before we are fully and finally in his unshielded presence forever. How do we do it? How do we best take Romans with us? How do we best weave its message into our lives? How do we best live in the realm of Adam as though we belong to the realm of Christ? All for the glory of God. To the praise of his glory ultimately. How do we do that? Well again, Paul gives us the language right here. He gives the language right here. He gives us just the guidance that we need to fulfill his central purpose in this final paragraph. How do we bring glory to God forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord? We do it by living in the obedience of faith. That is the obedience that is born of faith. That is the obedience that is the natural outworking of a heart that has been changed by God in the ways that Romans 3 talks about. The obedience of faith, which was the focal point of Paul's letter from his opening greeting to his closing doxology. All of this written on our level to bring about the obedience of faith. We have a simple three-word description of what we should do with Romans. When does it ever get that simple? When does it ever get that clear? We read a bit earlier from the opening greeting of this letter that the aim of God's grace in sending Christ into the world and accomplishing salvation through him was to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. Among the nations. Chapter 1, verse 5. Now in its closing doxology, we're reminded of that very aim as the way we live into the central purpose of this conclusion. And my friends, this is our bottom line charge for today. This is how we hold on to the, the captivating and compelling teaching that we've received from this letter of Romans. This is how. This is how we bring glory to God through Jesus Christ in response to it. It's how we weave it into our lives. We offer worship to God for his salvation through our faith-enabled 
obedience to his word. It's that simple. Lived out to the praise of his glory. And if you listen closely to how this is stated about the obedience of faith, you might hear this passage calling you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you hear the echoes? Paul's just giving it to us once again, the central response to which we're called by this letter. And how does this work? How do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as our spiritual worship? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the Spirit, through the Word, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God. I love it, the testing. Do you remember the testing? You do it, it gets old, the flesh creeps in, you stumble, you fall, you return in repentance and faith, and you start again. You're, you're testing the will of God, and over time, you recognize, wow, these deviations, these, these diversions that I'm taking, they're, they're just not profitable. They're just not enjoyable. They don't add to the joy of my life. They don't provide for me what I was longing for when I, when I diverted from the path. I don't want that any longer. And a bit at a time, this truth, this text, this teaching just works its way into your soul such that the threads of its storyline are interwoven with the fabric of your being and you're living like a citizen of heaven in the realm of Christ rather than like one more among the offspring of Adam. You discern what is the obedience of faith. Surely we could hear no better Advent message today than to be reminded of the central purpose at the close of the fullest presentation of the gospel that appears in the Word of God. And to hear that enabling our response, catch this, to hear that enabling our response was God's central aim for us as he performed the greatest miracle of sending his eternal son into the world in human form, fulfilling promises so grand that we couldn't even understand them until we saw them happen. That God's central aim for us is to enable our response of obedience through the grandest miracle that he performed. That's how our story and the story of Romans are folded together. The greatest work that God has done enables the greatest response that we could muster. And we don't even muster it. It's the natural fruit and outworking of the regenerating work that he has done in us. And it shows itself in this obedience of faith. 
a grand and glorious story. Amen? And that which God would have us hear and understand and heed, obey to the praise of his glory. That's how we take this story with us. Here at the end of this series, we're going to give you just a few moments of silent prayer personally. Some of you I know have been taking notes. You might have a journal with you. Keep it handy. I'm going to give you a few extra minutes this morning. We've allowed for that so that nothing else needs to be distracting. And each of us needs to take a moment while we're still seated here together and capture what the Lord intends for us through this letter. How is it that you're going to pick up the threads? What needs to go on in your life right now, today, in order for the message of Romans to work its way into your heart, woven by the very hand of God, enabling you to live like a child of his kingdom? Take the next few moments in silence for prayer and thought, then I will close us in just a few minutes. Hopefully that's enough time to get started. Hopefully you're not finished yet. But to close this time, I'd like you to open your scriptures one last time if you've closed them, and let's read this text together as our closing prayer. Paul is addressing the church, so it's written in second person. Let's speak this to one another. Right? So as it's being spoken from your mouth, it's not being spoken directly to your heart. It's being spoken to the hearts of your brothers and sisters. It's an expression of welcoming one another. What's being spoken to your heart is coming from your brothers' and sisters' mouths as they address you. That's how Romans is supposed to be read. That's one of the unique characteristics of this. Let's read this text together as our closing prayer. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.